0: Okay, here we are with another Who's Your Mob podcast. And this one, I was up in Sydney and I got to go to the Conservatorium of Music to do this one because I was talking to Dr. Clint Bracknell and he's a Noongar man from over down Albany Way, the Willimon Mob. And he's also a teacher of contemporary music at the Con. And it was great to have a chat with him, especially about this project he's doing with his mob, who were trying to regather old songs, and it was a great opportunity to chat with... I think he's the only Aboriginal ethnomusicologist, and I guess we explain a little bit about what that means. So, I hope you enjoy our little chat, and nice to get this perspective from two sides of the country via Dr. Clint Bracknell.
1: Uh and Nyungar from the south coast of Western Australia. So my name's Clint Bracknell. My dad's white, that's where the Bracknell comes from. My mum's a Scot and her family's also Colemans and Robertses from down that way. Um, so Willemans are like a like a family name. Um, and Nyungar is just like the sort of the mother tongue of the region. So in in that region uh, nyungar or Nyoongar or nungar or however you want to say it is a person or a man and um, so everyone that has that language in common is nyungar or says that they're nyungar, most of them anyway, some people don't. And um, then a lot of those little um, little groups like Wurloman, like our one, just means um, people that are associated with the Bushstone Curlew yeah, so that little skinny bird with the haunting
0: call. Yeah, well, from where my mob's from, uh, when you if you hear the curlew, that I means someone's passed away. Yeah, yeah. Is there other significance to the curlew?
1: Yeah, lots of different mobs got different stories about it, and a lot of them, a lot of people I have talked to it's like a spooky bird or like death bird or something like that. Mm. Um, but then with us, like Nana Hazel Brown is my grandfather's cousin um who's still alive today she's like coming up for 93. um she tells a story about um going down in fitzgerald national park and hearing the curlews sing out and then her father telling her all they're, they're calling out to us the williman people um you know letting us know that um, it's okay to be there and they know that we're coming and that sort of thing Yeah, nice one. Um, so that's pretty cool, but then, yeah, that, that same bird, because he's all around the country, everyone's got a different story for him.
0: I was up in Cairns recently, and I just saw, um, like, there's heaps just walking around the yeah. walking around yeah. town. And
1: No, when I was in Brisbane, um, yeah, I heard the call, and because you, a lot of the time down south, because there's heaps less of the bird, like, you hear the call sometimes if you're in a bush, but you rarely see him. But in Brisbane, they're just walking around in the, in the CBD. Yeah. And calling out, and I heard the call, I was like, what, that can't be. And then one of them followed me back to the hotel.
0: <laughs> so would it be the same, the exact same? I'm pretty area. sure it's yeah. the same
1: species, yeah. Um, I can't remember the Latin name, but yeah, bush stone yeah. Yeah,
0: right. So you said that there's a lot of different ways to say "nyungar." Yeah. So why is it different? Is it just different parts of the Nyungar country?
1: Or? Well, I, I don't really know, I mean, Aunty Roma-Winmar, who's um, one of the senior Nyungar language teachers back home, who's taught me a lot and who I do a lot of work with, um, a bit of travelling with too, she reckons if you put four Nyungars in a room, you're going to end up with five political parties by the end of the discussion. <laughs> so it might have something to do with that. Um, but also, like, you get different accents through a different country, just like in England and that, I suppose.
0: Yeah.
1: Everyone's talking English, but they all talk a bit different. Yeah, true. So I guess it's something to do with that. And then also, I guess, if you're going into someone else's country and um, you talk a bit different, Mm. then you stick out as not being from there and sort of helps people place you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of hard to know a lot of this sort of stuff now because people travel around so much and um, things have sort of changed with the way people use language. But generally, like, if I'm... Uh, hearing uh, people from down in, around Albany, on the very southern tip of WA talking, you hear like that Nyungar, and then up in Perth, that, that Ny sound is more prevalent, like Nyungar. Yeah. So um, I know when they were starting off the Nyungar language revitalization movement, in the, um, even in the 80s, and this is coming from Annie Roma again, like you want to interview her if you ever get to WA, she's great. Um, there was a lot of discussion just on that one word, you know, and that mm. it took a long time to, when all the oldies, uh, senior people got together to even figure out how we're going to spell that one word. Cause everyone was saying it slightly differently.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and,
0: so and how, how should I spell it?
1: Oh man, the, the land council just goes N double O N G A R. Um, and that's, I mean, yeah, I guess that's the representative body for native title, and it's the only representative body that exists currently. So mm-hmm. that's usually the, um, the party line way to do it. Yeah. Um, the school teachers also spell it that same way, and that's going from the original meetings they had back in the 80s and 90s to develop a spelling system. Um, so that probably adds to the idea that you'd spell it that way. But then lots of people spell it whatever way they want Mm. um and that's all about i guess personal choice and freedom and the fact is we're all using roman script anyway and it's all pretty um problematic (laughs) in a lot of senses not just in the fact that it doesn't represent a lot of aboriginal languages too well but that um yeah people are coming from a background where they're using roman script to represent english which isn't a phonetic language really anyway. Mm. You've got all these funny rules about spelling English and then you apply all those funny rules to spelling an Aboriginal language rather than apply the rules of, say, Spanish or Italian or a language that's actually a lot more phonetic mm. and it's used to script, then you end up with all sorts of problems. Yeah. So you've got English speakers, you know, saying that, um, I don't know, all the different, different letters you can use for the same sounds. It's like, well, pick a sound. You know, is U a A or a U or, or a what is it? What's the letter U meant yeah. to represent if you're coming from English?
0: And then it seems like there are some vowels and syllables which are halfway in between. Yeah, yeah. What, what is, and then
1: you've got the uh, like the schwa sound. So at the end of like brother, you know, yeah. brother, what's that? It's not brother mm. like an American would say it. And that U uh, sound is right through Aboriginal languages. So like Arunda mob use E as a schwa, like I think, anyway, I don't know Arunda orthography that well, but like that E sound is the uh. Mm. And so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then that that sounds in Nyungara in language as well. Um, but how is it represented? I think in the school teacher orthography, it's represented with a single A. So a single A is meant to be a uh, and a double A is meant to be a ah. Yeah, right. So, um, but like I said, I'm not a linguist and so I'm just sort of reading the material that's out there and going, okay, that must be what people were thinking, I guess. Yeah. Um, but i yeah, I'd never claim any authority as any sort of language
0: uh, expert or whatever. But I was watching uh, a talk that you did and I guess you were saying how you use the international phonetic language for some of the... Oh,
1: right, yeah. So with this, I've been helping out with this uh, Woolloman Noongar Language and Stories project, which was started um, way back in, like, sort of... I mean, the Woolerman, uh Corporation has been around for a lot longer, but sort of around um, 2006, um, the Woolloman Noongar Language and Stories project started, and that was sort of spearheaded by... Um, Then Hazel Brown, and um, many of her siblings who have since passed away, and uh, Aunty Roma Wimar, Aunty Iris Woods, Uncle Kim Scott, Uncle Lazard Flowers, they're sort of the main uh, people on that next generation down that are pushing it. I've been helping out with that um, since about 2010, and a lot of that started with this material that was recorded by an American linguistics student who wrote down interviews with a lot of, say, that grandparent generation now's um, parent and uncle sort of generation Mm -hmm. in the 1930s in Albany. And so that was all written in International Phonetic Alphabet. So people involved with that project had to learn International Phonetic Alphabet to figure out what was actually going on. Um, But it's, I mean, the International Phonetic Alphabet is useful in that it's a standardised way of writing a language where a sound means something. Can I steal your water? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Thanks, bro. Yeah, so I mean, I've had a look at that sort of stuff, but, like, I've never studied linguistics, um, so everything I say, I sort of put that proviso on it because it's, yeah, you don't want to mislead people and end up, yeah, getting yourself in a bit of trouble.
0: Yeah. So then when you, I guess, trying to bring back some of these songs and, you know, some of them would have been documented, uh, written out, but you know, then you have some recordings. Yeah, how do you go about translating what they might've had in mind when, particularly from you know, their context, you know, I guess white, uh, maybe uh, anthropologists, or, to then be able to take that back to mob and say, oh, well actually, it probably would've sounded you know, more like this. Yeah. It's
1: a long and drawn out process.
0: Um, with
1: the songs project that I've been working on, um, it's all tied to that Willemann Noongar Language and Stories project. Like within that, there's uh, key families that were, um, that are descendants of the people that were interviewed by that American linguist. And so for that same Willemann mob, um, there's songs that were recorded by, people that have passed away now, but are the sort of uh, parents, uncles, or grandparents of the people that are involved now. Um, So a lot of the time it's just me taking in audio recordings to that representative group, um, taking in whatever other documentary evidence there is, whether it's notebooks or field recordings, and um, also taking in all the word lists that I can find, particularly looking at what regions the word lists have come from. And then just working through lyric by lyric, what do you reckon's going on here? Mm. And some of that group hold language, a lot of language. Some of that group don't hold much language, but they remember hearing the songs, and um, maybe even can add contextual information about like um, how they were performed. Because on the um, audio recordings, it's all you know—they're being interviewed by a linguist or an anthropologist who's not particularly interested in song. Um, but yet they're just singing one off the cuff and sometimes trying to remember it as they're singing it. So you're not getting that full performance.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And a lot of time they only sing the song once through the cycle. So if a song would be repeated, you don't hear it repeated, you just hear that one time through the song text. So you never know, maybe the next time, maybe it goes up an octave, down an octave, it could could do anything. Um, The melody could even change for all we know. so I guess over the course of the, the limited material that I've had access to, you just sort of try and listen to a lot of it, present it all to a group, um, try and come up with some sort of consensus based on all that contextual information, all the documentary evidence, and then people's memories together. Try to come up with some idea as a group of, oh, we think it's this what's going on. Mm. And then we try and um, learn to sing it or remember to sing it if you've heard it when you were younger
0: yeah
1: yeah um, but yeah it takes a long time and um, it's all about that that group thing you know because I could go away and study it like a regular um, sort of um, you know armchair scholar and um, I'd probably have a crack at singing it but what's the point hmm. if it's just me
0: yeah
1: some um, yeah it's much more useful if it's with a group and then the idea is once the whole group's feeling confident then you share it with more people.
0: Yeah, right.
1: But yeah, it takes a long time.
0: Is it possible to be able to get an understanding of other parts of the country and, and how they have song cycles and structures to be able to piece together some of the the missing parts of the puzzle in, in our country?
1: Yeah, to a degree. Um, I guess one of the main things is the idea of song genre. So up in the Pilbara they got this um, a genre of song that's like a folk song. It's got not necessarily anything to do with um, uh, song lines or these sort of things. Um, It's just like, you know, everyday occurrences, airplanes in the sky or whatever. Um, So reading a lot about the Pilbara song and how diverse it is, um, that idea of categorizing what a song might be about has sort of translated to me looking at the Noongar stuff. Um, in terms of what's going on musically, the percussion's missing from all these audio recordings. And yet, the people that I speak to and that I listen to these songs with remember hearing percussion. Mm-hmm. So one of the big challenges have been, well, what's the percussion doing? Because the songs are irregular, a lot of them. Yeah. You don't have the regular beat. So what's going on? And the funny thing is, for a lot of them, a regular sort of straight beat doesn't work, but once you put a swung back beat behind it, it works. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like, what's going on there? Because that's really different. Because I don't, I don't hear that anywhere else in Australia, in like real old songs. Um, so is that an influence thing? Is that a regional diversity thing? There are all these mysteries. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of what keeps me interested, um, apart from all the other sort of really great stuff about it, is just that it's musically and as a mystery um pretty interesting yeah yeah
0: something that i've found that listening to a lot of old recordings uh, well, well when i say old you know going back to maybe the 60s and yeah out in you know some remote parts is i guess trying to figure out how much of an influence western music might have had on some of their interpretations of the songs yeah and and the scales and because, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if they would have had, they wouldn't have had harmonic instruments to yeah. then be able to you know, develop progressions and, and scales and degrees and all that. But then at the same time, when you hear some of these pieces, it loosely sits in some scales that Yeah,
1: go. yeah, a lot of stuff's pretty diatonic. So, and then you, you got, the octave drop is pretty common too. Mm. So being able to sing a per- perfect octave. Yeah. And that being, a, like in a lot of different songs, you'll have someone singing up the octave, and then to end the song they will ride down the octave. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Um, but that said, I, I think that was happening long before all the um, Western instrumentation came into the country. Mm. Um, that seems like a just a, you know pretty musical thing to do. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, and then I guess. There's also, if you've got like a really good singer, they'll generally have a broader melodic range than someone that might just be singing along as a, um, someone that's participating in a yeah, right. performance or ceremony or whatever. Um, so when I'm listening to these old recordings, I'm thinking, well, if it's a pretty narrow pitch range, if it's easy to sing, more likely than not, it's a group, could be a group song. Mm. Could be easy to sing, especially if it's got regular time more or less regular time, narrow pitch range, group could have a go at singing this. Whereas if it's got a pretty intricate uh, melody and you're covering a lot of ground in terms of notes and the, the timing is more irregular, then it's more likely a solo song yeah. sung by someone that's a pretty good singer. Because you, you have to be a pretty good singer to sing a lot of these songs.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so the nyunga songs, that you got to have listened to from archives and such. What were some of the context, the content matter that was sung about?
1: Um, There's songs about, being that like a lot of them are from that uh, south coast area. Because there's, um, Tim McCabe an anthropologist, recorded a lot of songs from more inland. Quite a while ago now, a few decades ago now, and he uses them to teach in the uh, prison in Perth. he have been doing that for a long time. I haven't heard many of those songs. A few of them made their way onto a Nyungar um, language learning kit in the 90s, and um, they're pretty great. Um, but a lot of the South Coast songs are seem to be about the ocean. So you got songs about uh, going whaling, because the whaling industry was really big um, back, you know, a few. Not that long ago, really. I guess the 70s they sort of wound it up. Um, But since, um, I guess, 1800 or whatever, there's been whalers along that coast. So, songs about whaling. Uh, There's a salmon song we come across. Um, Song about, you know, devils. A few devil songs. And um, sheep. All sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Song about going to the races. Yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> and all in Yungar, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess some of these songs—song about going fishing and getting hit by a wave—you know, a lot of these songs would be pretty old, but you know, they could be pretty new too. Mm. Um, it's sort of hard to put a time depth on them by subject matter, unless it's about like sheep, because sheep only come to the country so recently.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, but they cover a lot of ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah and are these songs uh, do you have to be careful as to where you can show people these songs um do they have direct connections to families that are still here that would then own the songs yeah How-
1: yeah the ownership thing's really tricky because um there's song lyrics that i've looked at that have all been written down so talking like george gray in sort of 1840 or a bit earlier Uh, Daisy Bates, uh, sort of after 1900 till about 1912, wrote down a lot of Nyungar songs. She published most of them. And if they're not published, they're in her um, handwritten manuscript that's available freely on microfilm in WA and in the uh, National Library, I think. So a lot of this stuff, the lyrics have been in the public domain for a long time. And a lot of the people that told her the songs, sometimes she didn't write down who told her the song. So then it's like, well, what do we do with that? But when she has written down who's told her the song, a lot of the descendants of those people are still around and they're, you know, pretty well-known families. And then you've got, um, but the stuff's sort of been told to Daisy Bates and then it's been in the public domain since, you know, a lot of the time since the early 1900s. She published them in newspapers and stuff too. Um, So that sort of makes you wonder about, you know, what's public domain, what's open, what's closed. Seems it must've been pretty open if it's being shared with Daisy Bates and then getting published in the newspaper Mm. if people were okay with that. And then you've got the uh, audio recordings, um, and a lot of the time being performed for an anthropologist or linguist um, in front of a crowd of people, including men and women. So that makes you think about what sort of restrictions may or may not have been in play. Um, talking to um, Uncle Henry Dabb, who's um, one of the senior people um, descended from two of the singers recorded in the 70s that I've listened to, um, says he remembers hearing those songs sung um, infrequently just when they'd be on a road trip and stop the car and get out and have a cup of tea, sing them songs about, you know, fishing or you yeah. know, salmon or whatever. Um, so it seems like a lot of the songs that I've been sort of coming into contact with are not of a you know, really restricted ceremonial nature. And I think that when we look at Aboriginal song and because of all those high-profile cases of uh, communities saying, oh, that's not right, that shouldn't be public domain, Um, we tend to think in that way about restriction. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think before um, fairly recent times, singing was a pretty common occurrence. Like mob would be singing a lot. And now we talk more than we sing. Whereas I think that's something that's changed probably only in the last, you know, maybe 50, 70 years or something. Um, Especially when you look back at, with that Southwest WA area, all the the old um, explorer's journals and stuff. And they're talking about people singing out to the boat before they've even landed, Hmm. you know. And then, you know, hearing the camps at night. And if someone wanted to... Be heard to tell a story about the day above the din of everyone chattering. They'd sing it out, you know, as if they're you know doing an opera or something. Yeah. So, song having this real functional um, role in communication in this country, or at least in the southwest of WA, where I've read about you know what's going on and I've talked to lots of people about it. Um, yeah, I think people sing less today. And um, yeah, when we start talking about this open close sort of stuff, it's really important. Um, but I think a lot of the time we get distracted from the fact that, hey, we're not singing as much as we used to. Mm. Um, But yeah, something you sort of come across a lot.
0: Yeah, but then if there were going to be other Noongars outside of the Werleman area, or even people that weren't even Noongar to want to sing some of these songs or or play some of these songs. uh,
1: That's where it gets interesting because When something becomes endangered, it becomes more cherished and some might say sacred. Mm. So a song about sheep, an old Nyungar song about sheep in an era where Nyungar language is endangered and where people have been, well, where people quite literally in some cases have had the language beaten out of them, becomes something that's pretty important and carries a lot of value. So to have that sort of bandied about freely people might get um, uncomfortable about that so that's why when I've been looking at this stuff I've just taken it really slowly group of people around me senior people more senior than me I'm the gopher I'm just going to get the stuff and sort of work through it use the computer use the audio recording stuff um, try and be useful and sort of um, leave it to other more senior more experienced people to sort of Lead things and take it at the pace it needs to go at. Because um, the last thing you want to do is make people feel uncomfortable. And um, listening to a lot of those tapes, even because people that have passed away, you know, and sometimes people may feel, you know, a little bit like they've missed out. You know, they're, they're listening to a song that was recorded in the 70s and they were there and they remember hearing it but they didn't learn the song. So that's a pretty powerful thing to think about you know mm. and you haven't listened to the tape now it's um, yeah, it opened up some wounds and um, so I imagine if you had like a deep forest scenario or something where a foreign music producer grabs an old <laughs> song and sticks it on a techno track and has a hit they'd get some pretty bad responses mm. uh, and not because the song would be like one of those restricted ceremonial songs but simply because it's it's emerged from this context of a whole lot of um, endangerment, trauma, um, poverty, all these things that really, really are difficult to to get over. And and because music's so emotive anyway. You know, if this this stuff just falls into what you might call the wrong hands, it could have pretty damaging effects on individuals and families
0: yeah 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 something that i'm trying to navigate uh is trying to work out ways to to have it be able to be formed and and given new context and new like appealing context to like you're doing this um teaching here and you're teaching a lot of people about pop music and a lot of young kids coming through wanting to, you know, be a, a hip-hop producer or a, a opera singer or, or whatever. Um, just trying to find that balance of opening it up to, to have it, you know, accessible and available. Because mm-hmm. I'm also finding that, you know, a lot of these restrictions and carefully guarding, you know, some of these yeah. songs make it quite hard for, you know, a, a to breathe and live yeah. and be, be able to be used and shared. Yeah, just wondering if you have any thoughts and feelings of where a balance might be struck
1: I think it's all about where the community is up to, or where different families are up to. Like, a lot of the time, mob will come in from Arnhem Land and they'll be singing and sharing. Very, I mean, you can share a lot when you've got a lot, you know? If there's a big performance culture in a certain place, you can go other places and share that, because it's solid at home. Whereas, um, with the mob I'm working with, we're, we're not at that stage yet where we can share freely. Um, it's still in that sort of becoming strong stage. And then when it's at the point where we've got a critical mass of the mob that the, that, you know, the, it's their stuff, uh, know it and perform it and feel comfortable with it, then you can move on to that next stage of opening it up a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, you can have music that exists as a, like a thing, an artifact, um, but if it's not, if there's no people with that, then it's just an artifact. It, it's not alive. And it sort of loses meaning. It's so even with language, like when we talk about Aboriginal languages, um, you know, I might be talking about like Nyungar language, like people use a lot of Nyungar words every day. Not many people use the language right through. And so what language do most Nyungar people speak? Aboriginal English you know, today. Um, so that's the language that's used every day by that people. And um, that means something in terms of, in its own context. Mm-hmm. If you go talk to mob, you know, from the Southwest, you know, it'd be a mix of Aboriginal English, standard Australian English, few Noongar words chucked in. So that's what people are talking now. Yeah. And then the language, as it was spoken before, you know, was sort of, this other thing where we're going through various processes and waves of language revitalization where you know it's, it's changing and evolving and people are finding new contexts to use it in like gina williams did an album or maybe a couple of albums now in in younger, like pop songs
0: yeah right and um all, all through
1: all through yeah yeah and so people are using language in different ways um, uh, Kylie Bracknell is uh, translating a full work of Shakespeare into Noongar language. Very ambitious project. Um, Yeah, so I mean it's, but it's this thing that's, yeah, it's without people behind it. So both those projects that I mentioned involve a whole lot of groundwork, like doing a a, um, Shakespeare play in Nyungar means you've got to have all Nyungar actors. You've got to do heaps of language workshops. You've got to have a senior language person who's on your own Winmar involved. You know, you've got to through all these things to get to the final product of doing it. And why do you do it? Because that's the domain in which you can use language. Mm-hmm. Because it's not being used in its way right through um, as part of most people's everyday life. So I guess music's kind of the same. Whereas, you know, in the old days, from what I understand anyway, people used to sing a lot, just you know, walking down the path, you know, or coming back after getting the feed or whatever, you sing about what you did. Yeah. You meet someone new, you sing where you're from. All these things, which we don't do today. So, well, what are the new ways that we do use song? And um, maybe we need to bring some of the old ways back? I don't know. Yeah. But it's all about this changing cultural context and how do we negotiate you know, keeping enough where we don't feel like we've lost <laughs> stuff, you know, where we feel good about ourselves as communities, families, individuals. Um, but then also acknowledging with music too that the music industry is, uh, is a money-hungry beast. And so when we start having these things interact, these very um, personal and... Family oriented, community oriented, musical elements, language elements, all this stuff, when that starts interacting with that um, very uh, commercial music industry, there's a lot of tension in that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess anyone that's getting involved in that sort of space, I'd encourage them to have a lot of allies with them. Because, um, yeah, it'd be a lonely place to be all by yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, if. Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of um, a lot of walls you come up against. I imagine.
0: Mm. Yeah. So then, with the songs that you just brought back from IATSIS and uh, and yeah, I guess there was some other people as well that were yeah, able to recall some songs and be able to sing them for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So how is the mob down there able to? interact with the music and be able to share it and and, uh, and or practice it
1: yeah so i've got um i've edited stuff into um little mp3s of songs from big long field tapes um hand out usbs with the songs on them and then we also like learn songs sing them in workshops record them as little mp3s so everyone's got little playlists on mp3s some people put them on their phone listen to it in the car Um, then share it, you know, copy it to another computer, airdrop from your phone, whatever. And so that's starting with that small group of like descendants and uh, language advisors, language teachers thing, and sort of moving out as those people see fit. Um, And then the ultimate goal being, well, we want to get it out of that group and shared more broadly with people that are connected and then eventually be able to perform and stuff. Mm-hmm. with dance maybe, you know, there's lots of lots of other younger families doing heaps of stuff and have been for quite a long time. So it's just getting part of that, being part of that mix. Um, a lot of potential there. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's real slow going.
0: Well, I guess that's something... Because
1: everyone's good. got lives, you know? Yeah. People got to work, got kids, you know, got to take part in this, this uh, daily grind that we all do. And so when you've got time for music,
0: mm. you know, I guess it's interesting finding how culture, like song and dance, having to have this different context and, you know, these days it's a performative thing uh, rather than a ceremonial thing for, I guess, a lot of people down in the southern part of the country. And, yeah, like, I guess the, the times that I could see, you know, traditional dance and song as, Opening a conference, or uh, opening you know this or that, or a a festival. So, um, but I guess it's sort
1: of it's had that function for a long time too, because I mean you've always had you would have always had song you know song used in ceremony, song used in everyday life, song used as part of conversation, song used for gossip, song love song, all different type any type of song you could imagine, mob would have had that song, mm -hmm. and then when you had um, I'm just thinking like. someone like Jagen in Perth hosting a, um, some sort of gathering with the colonists, you know, and he'd emcee the gathering. There probably would have been song there too, just like there is now at these, you know, uh, government events and whatever. Um, and then there was, like you'd have um, Matthew Flinders rocking up in Albany and his soldiers doing military drill. And then the um, The local fellas that saw it, only a handful of them, memorising the drill and turning that into a dance and a song. Uh, So I think that, you know, song as performance, as something you do to have fun, to entertain, it's always been around. And it's sort of part of, sort of an expected part of interacting with different groups. You know, if you come, you better have a good song, better have a good dance to show us or something, you know, like, it's just part of being polite. Um, that's the way I sort of think of it anyway, and yeah. the way people talk to me about it. Um, but it's interesting imagining that sort of different musical context to what it is today. Because the commercial nature of so much of what music is in Australia today, um, I think is very different in a lot of ways to what would have happened before. But that said, if you knew a good song, good, and you're a good performer, you could probably travel through country in the old days, and you'd get a feed, you know, people welcome you in because mm-hmm. they want to hear that good song. Yeah, you know, and there's still like um, people around today that if you can sing like the good old songs, people know who you are, and you know, it's a way of getting being a respected person. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think yeah, there's similarities and differences, I suppose. Yeah.
0: So are there are other parts of your country that are doing similar things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Like, I mean, Richard Wally and all um, his crew, they've been doing lots of performance stuff. I mean, he used to tour internationally in the 70s. And like, I mean, Didgeridoo came down in a big way to the southwest, so a lot of performances you'll see like at festivals and stuff, there'll be, you know, Dig and Sticks and Dance and all that sort of thing mixed in with Song. Um, Yeah, lots of different families have been doing stuff. Mm. Um, And then there's a Nyungar Language Centre down in Bunbury that have been doing stuff like um, the Humphreys mob have been doing stuff with um, that anthropologist Tim McCabe for a long time and that's being used to teach in the Perth uh, prison still I think so there's all these different fires burning around the place so that's why like a like language like Nyungar when you're in this um, part of the country that's got so many houses and farms and everything on it for it to be as um, solid as it is it's because of all these different people keep sort of Keeping that flame burning, I guess. A lot of people interested in it. It's also a pretty big group. I mean, I think there's more Nyungar mob than there are Orao.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So it's a pretty sizable population.
0: Yeah, as I was, well. I was wondering, uh, if the um, I guess the population of Nungar mob to you know Koori mob in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, is it is it similar? Do, I, do, do you see more black fellows over there? Oh,
1: maybe? I don't know. I don't really get out much here, I just work, work, work. Um, but no, I mean, I guess a lot of um, mob in Sydney would be from elsewhere as well, because it's mm-hmm. such a, a cultural hub and people are drawn to Sydney for work and yeah. other reasons. Um, so I guess you probably probably get more of a multicultural mix in Sydney than you do in WA. Um, but that said, people move around a lot in WA too. But in terms of like a people with a, a mutually intelligible language, I'm pretty sure that Nyungar language block with all of its variations inside would be probably one of the biggest ones in the country. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How is it for you, I guess, being over on the other side of the country and yeah, it seems like the important work that you're doing is you're very localised. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to say that you, you're not doing you know, great stuff here with the conservatorium um, and yeah, well being off Country and yeah. uh, I guess your, your wife as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean if wife. it wasn't for my wife, um, I wouldn't talk Noongar really at all um, It's funny how I just had these um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students come in from all over the country to spend a week with us here now and just seeing them I'll you know you had, try to code switch properly But sometimes an odd Noongar word will come in and you'll sort of correct yourself just when you're around mob, you know, like. yeah sort of weird Um, but yeah if it wasn't for my wife who speaks better than me I wouldn't really speak over here in Sydney there'd be no no call for it Um, and we get we try to get back as much as we can but it's tricky and there's that whole thing of you know like well there aren't many jobs if you're a music academic so um, they wanted me here so I heeded the call and came over And same thing for her, there aren't that many acting gigs in WA, so you gotta be where the work is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, but it is a stress, cause I mean, you miss home. But, um, yeah, not many not many jobs for me back in, uh, you know, on the south coast.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then being over here, is there any demand for you knowledge of Aboriginal music, to be able to service to different tribes around the country?
1: Um, I went down to Melbourne a while ago to um, meet with a bunch of people that were brought in from all over the country and there was some local mob there that was sort of working through that same sort of same sort of issues about you know how you do, how you deal with old songs and stuff and so I think maybe I was useful there but I think just like everyone I'm sort of muddling through um, only difference is that I can um, write it up that sort of real academic way and put it out there. But um, a lot of the time when you're doing that, you're holding back more than you're actually giving. You know, when, you, when I write academic articles about, you know, doing this stuff, you
0: know, you
1: know, helping community workshops happen and um, working with old songs, bringing people stuff that their, you know, uncles or grandparents or fathers or whatever have left, um, a lot of people are doing that. I just happen to write about it, about that process. Just like, and it's all, when you're writing research, it's, people think like research is going and getting all the secrets and then putting them in a book. But it's not really that anymore. If it's proper, like good research, it's about process. So it's like, well, if you listen to an old song in a community workshop, what are you listening for? Are you you're listening for, is that different from spoken language? Is that like a word ending that's indicating something's happening now, or is it indicating something happened in the past? All these different things to sort of look out for and different processes you could try. I sort of think that's my contribution mm. to the field. Um, but that said it's as well, like to get funding to do community workshops, you need to have research outputs. And a lot of the time a research output, a convenient research output to sign off on for your funding or a funding body is you got a chapter in a book, you published a peer-reviewed ref- peer journal article or something like that, you know? Mm. Um, where really that sort of, to me, that's like the byproduct of the actual goal, which is just keeping the community workshops and interest going. Because without that, it's, um, I mean, you sort of need to organise to do this stuff now, like language work, listening to old songs, learning how to sing them, you need to organize that because it if you if you're very lucky it happens organically but i think for a lot of people today that are caught up in this you know world um you need to actually sit down and organize okay this is the day we're getting together everyone knows what time show up and got a place to do it and yeah. got the gear <laughs> you know, got the speakers yeah so sort of requires a bit of a methodical approach and then hopefully as this has happened around the country in different areas you know it picks up steam and then just starts to happen organically again but i guess it requires that little bit of um you know a few people pushing to get things started get the ball rolling
0: okay, yeah and how do you translate what goes on there i guess you know they're, they're there are different focuses i imagine that the mob might have from the revitalization of language and things that they go through from you know hearing their you know grandparents singing on recordings it seems like it might be hard to capture within uh, an academic journal mm. where i guess it, it, a lot of the stuff that i read it, it seems to be pretty dry eh? yeah and so it's quite technical you know, they're talking about, you know, this, and then they have to reference, you know, blast mm-hmm. and satisfy requirements or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so how are you able to capture some of the magic of what goes on into an academic journal?
1: I don't think I've been able to adequately, really. I mean, I'll, I'll talk a long time about slow and deliberate processes and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, a lot of it's just just hard. I mean, like, um, Jeannie Bell in her... Um, writing about language revitalisation has already published a lot about um, processes in community and when you're revitalising languages and different um, issues you might face and so I draw a lot on that and sort of just echo a lot of the sentiments that other people have written about before when they're working with language sort of the same thing with song because the two aren't that dissimilar really um, so when you say referencing, well, yeah I mean, I reference what other people have done in terms of that to get the point across. Um, And then, you know, I try to include um, direct quotes from people involved in the workshops just to say, you know, this song means something to me because... And, um, yeah, hopefully that cuts through as well. But I guess when you think about your audience when you're writing those, you know, book chapters or journal articles, quite often it's a non-Aboriginal audience that's reading it. Um, it's usually you know linguists or ethnomusicologists and so i guess with that i'm just adding my voice to all the other voices there and it's a bit of a different perspective because i've got maybe a bit more of a uh, personal stake Um, i mean i've started working with sort of helping out other uh, different groups around the place, but um, yeah, I've got a personal stake in the Noongar stuff because that's where I'm from.
0: Yeah. Something that I find while just doing my own research is that, you know, just going back to the, you know, the 50s and 60s when they were starting to do a lot of recording of different mobs around the country. The, wouldn't have been Aboriginal people going to university to then you know have this opportunity to yeah. document uh, recordings. So uh, I guess for the most part I'm I'm learning about Aboriginal culture through a, a white lens. Yeah, you know, I guess you've uh, you know would have had a chance to meet you know some other uh, music anthropologists and be able to. Um, Oh, no, we call it ethnomusicologists.
1: Ethnomusicologists. Yes. Sounds like a disease, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> so, um, so with um, meeting some of the, these people, do they seem to get it and understand?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny, especially you really notice it when you go outside of Australia. Um, I think ethnomusicologists or music researchers in Australia, um, a lot of them are pretty um, progressive when you look internationally at that type of work. A lot of the time you still get someone... Who's, you know, fairly well off, going into a community where people are fairly poor, recording their music, writing about it. That's sort of the old standard practice, and now you're finding more that um, people like, say, Sally Treloyne will um, have long-standing relationships with particular communities that she works with. She'll um, be given a lot of responsibility. To document stuff and ensure that people are showing up to, you know, <laughs> workshops or whatever and um, that uh, stuff is recorded so it can be passed on. It's almost as if um, ethnomusicologists are now becoming the tool of communities in a more direct way. Because when you listen to the old recordings with the anthropologists or whoever and some senior person's going, oh, I know you want to hear about how I make the axe, but I'll tell you a song now. Now listen, and then they'll do the song, even though the Anthropologists may not have been ready for it or whatever because they're knowing, okay, that's been recorded. I'll make sure that's in there. Mm. So you have you know, that type of agency exerted in that more unequal research scenario. But now it's more overt because of all the ethical guidelines and stuff. If a researcher is going into a community and then the community is not getting benefit from it, that's unethical research. So researchers, a lot of the time, especially music researchers now, are going into communities. And a lot of the time, they've already got relationships with those communities like... They've been a school teacher in that community, or they've been introduced to people in that community through another one of their, you know, mentors or teachers or something. And um, those relationships are established by the community for the community, and that's how the work progresses. Um, so you see that happening a lot in Australia, a lot more in Australia compared to overseas. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: like overseas, where
1: where are they doing? Well, something? I mean. Uh, I went to a conference in uh, the United States recently with um, Sally Trahoyne and uh, Reuben Brown from uh, Melbourne University, and um, they brought with them the, uh, the singers that they work with. And the singers that they work with from the Kimberley and the Pilbara did most of the presentation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sally and Reuben just pretty much organized the flights, got the funding, all that sort of stuff. And they added, you know, that little bit of um, academic talk to make it sort of, you know, have that language in there too for the, most of the audience. And that was... and I mean, they presented and then I did my little spiel. And then every other panel that I went to at that conference, there was no one else there talking about their own music. They are all talking about someone else's music. Mm. I went to one panel about... Um, Native American uh, stuff and no one on the panel was Native American and I was like oh well, that's a bit strange because the Australian you know, panel that went over there's this knowledge that if you don't have people there talking about their own music then it's a bit strange yeah, yeah. you know you're not really getting the full picture and there's this hangover of what research used to be about that sort of would stink up the room if you didn't have, it really clearly articulated, okay, what are the relationships here, you know? Is this person a FIFO researcher or are they, you know, someone that's got a serious relationship with the community? And in Australia, I think, yeah, you're getting a lot less of the FIFO researcher. It's really, um, I think, yeah, Australia's, in music research, is a real world world leader. Mm. Seeing the trend and people are, you know, picking up on that i think
0: yeah cool so i've got to ask how you go about um accessing iatsis files because I, I popped in there and i was trying to find you know some stuff and it's yeah it's quite a process it's, yeah. it's down there in canberra and i think there's just so much stuff to sort through and probably don't really know what you're looking for exactly, mm. um, you know, just maybe where stuff's from and, yeah. and then, um, yeah, I guess there's a lot, a lot of listening, but, um, yeah, just wondering for other people who are wanting to find out stuff about where they're from yeah, how to, yeah how to go about it. It
1: can be quite different. difficult because the stuff in IATSIS, because a lot of it's the recordings of anthropologists, they're asking about secret stuff. And so the whole field recording might be labelled you know, restricted material, because they're talking at one point about men's business or something, you know, but they're also singing all these songs about sheep or whatever (laughs) as well, which is not restricted. Um, But to listen to that field recording, you need a letter from some Aboriginal organisation or something that's connected to that uh, person that's talking on the recording. So it can be quite difficult in those ways. Um, And I mean, IATSIS, you know, they've had funding cut after funding cut so when people will say, oh, this hasn't got back to me, I'm like, well, they're, they're probably doing the best they can. You know, um, There's a whole lot of material there, a lot of it's still yet to be digitized, so it's all in those reel-to-reels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I spent a few good days there back in, I think, 2011, and I've only been back once since. Um, I sort of was able to narrow it down a bit and then because of the nature of some of that stuff being restricted, I can only listen to so much of it. A lot of recordings that I've heard have been shared with me by other people in community that have had those recordings, because that's their family. Mm. You know, it's been repatriated through some other organization, yep. through Department of Indigenous Affairs or whatever. Um, and then other recordings that I've heard have been um, cassette recordings that people have done, either with others or something else. Um, So it's this real, yeah, roundabout way that I've come into contact with a lot of the songs that I've listened to. But with the IASA stuff, I think, yeah, patience is a virtue. Um, I think the mob there try to do the best job they can. But then, yeah, with that restricted material stuff, it can be really hard. So it's just getting that letter from that Aboriginal organisation to let you listen, figure out what's there. And then when you do figure out what's there, what I've done is also um, share my transcripts of what's there or my notes of what's there with other people that are connected to that recording. So it's like, that helps them out too, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a minefield. Yeah. It's, it's because of all the, I guess the more ethically lax research practices of the past that we sort of have to have all these barriers today.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You don't want things to go bad again. But now when you've got um, Aboriginal people try to access stuff about their own mob, um, maybe we need to rethink how that works. But then you've also got family dynamics too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So just because you know, you're Nyungar doesn't mean that that Nyungar family who's old, senior person's recorded on that tape wants you to listen to it. Yeah. You know, so it's really tricky.
0: I guess it is, you know, quite amazing. Um, it seems to um, seem to have done quite a good job with the database and and then um, yeah, like to type in certain names yeah. and, and that and to what, digitize all those old Dawn newspapers. Oh yeah.
1: No, it's it's amazing. Between IATSIS and Trove I think we're really lucky in Australia to have the resources we have, Um, just hopefully they can keep being funded, and I guess the more people that use them, the more likely they'll continue to be funded.
0: Mm -hmm. So where else are you doing your study, and where else are you learning about Aboriginal music?
1: Oh, it's really early right now, but I've um, been talking a lot with um, Sean Angelis from the Estrella Research Centre, who's an fellow archivist, and so I'm sort of, yeah, trying to uh, support him in his uh, project that he's putting together, which is sort of tangential to um, Rachel Perkins's and Miff Turpin's uh, Aranda Women's Song project. And so that's early stages yet, but um, Sean's a really yeah, solid guy. And so, with that, I mean, I'm not particularly interested in Aranda stuff. You know, I think it's great. And um, if that can help that community get stronger and everything, and everyone feel good about it. It's really good, but I was talking to Sean about it and just said, well, look, I just wanna make sure that your project's a success. It's not not my country, so, you know, I don't need to know anything about it, really. Mm. Um, And I imagine a lot of what ends up with a uh, situation like that is maybe if I'm writing stuff, it's about process, or we're co-writing, and anything he wants to include in stuff or, and the community wants to include in what comes out is there too. But yes, that hands-off sort of approach. Mm. Whereas the old, I guess a lot of the old way was, you know, going and finding out all people's, because you listen to those old recordings, so people want to know about all the secret stuff. And um, yeah, it's, I guess that's where research got a bad name in the first place. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, we're here at the Conservatorium of Music where you're a teacher, uh, I guess a teacher of contemporary music. Yeah. What exactly are you teaching?
1: So, I, I started up this, uh, I was the one brought in to um, sort of put the courses together, put the you know units of study together for this new uh, contemporary music major program of study. So, it's a bachelor's degree. And essentially, it's people coming in who don't do classical music, who don't do jazz, they do everything from country to EDM, Um, coming in and having a place at the conservatorium. So it means that all the, I guess, musical stuff that I've been involved with over the years comes into play and I try to bring in people that know things better than I do to help out. And um, yeah, we just try and support the growth of those musicians who are Doing whatever they're doing, and um, give them a taste of that, you know, other side of university life, which is all that academic writing stuff, critical thinking, research skills, and have that as part of a degree where you're actually centred around the music that you like, and that um, is part of, you know, the world today. Because mm. um, you know, classical music and jazz are great, but it's only a small part of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, so it's just yeah, that's that's my main job here is just facilitating that. And then I mean I'll um, I'll do a bit of teaching on Aboriginal music, but to be honest, most of that is teaching about music in terms of uh, civil rights and um, representation, because all the popular music that's been made by Aboriginal people over the years is incredibly important in Australia. And if that's not being, if you're not finding out about that at you know, a place like the Conservatorium in Sydney, then there's something really wrong. Mm. Uh, so a lot of my teaching that I do around Aboriginal music is on, is on all those great um, pivotal sort of songs.
0: Yeah. Like what in particular, what were some of your favourites?
1: Oh, Yulal by Joe Guyer is pretty important. Took the Children Away is really important. Um, give the Koori a Chance is pretty important too, your grandfather's song. And um, a lot of those Buried Country songs, mm-hmm. just exposing students to that sort of thing. Because a lot of the time, like of its time, say a song like um, Took the Children Away changed public perception in, in the country, you know, because it's so emotive. And it told a story that maybe people didn't want to hear but they had to connect to. And then that influenced uh, public opinion and changed things. And you see over and over again that sort of thing happening with, that, um, with Aboriginal songwriters sort of picking up the mantle and you know, educating the public. And that's one of those domains where you can do that through music. Um, because, you know, it's a powerful medium. It's mm-hmm. persuasive yeah, yeah. and emotive. Um, so you see over and over again music having that effect.
0: And then you were talking to me before about, uh, I guess, the technicalities of writing the perfect pop song. So is there any guide as to what was required?
1: Oh, you just got to keep people interested. That's the thing. Um, yeah, with this whole, you know, the way people produce music these days, it's all, a lot of it's based around loops, even if you're making music that's like singer-songwriter or acoustic or whatever, quite often you're still working to a click track and you're still, you know, cutting and pasting and repeating sections and that sort of thing. Um, And so when you listen to music, if we hear the same thing too much, we switch off. So when you listen to a track that's well produced, something's changing throughout the track. Something's being introduced to keep the listener interested. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main things that I, I try and stress and even when we've got all these things that make music production easier we can't lose track of that fact that that listener is still going to get disinterested at a certain point.
0: Well do you get to still play and write yourself now that you're so busy teaching? and
1: Not as much as I like, no. I mean I, I do um, a few theatre gigs, like doing music for theatre shows and stuff, which I enjoy just because it gets me, um, you know, making music. And then I've been helping out uh, Jesse Lloyd with the Mission Songs Project as well, just playing double bass for that. Um, yeah, do the odd gig. But, uh, yeah, don't sing nearly as much as I'd like anymore, just on account of, you know, being too busy.
0: Uh, if people wanted to, like, hear your music, like, was there... Oh,
1: I think it's all. Still
0: have an
1: old face? I think it's all out in the ether somewhere. Occasionally there's an old um, set that comes up on NITV um, that was recorded back about a decade ago or more. Yeah, cool. Um, and so I usually get a few messages or something when that comes up. Oh, we saw you on TV. Or, oh, are you are you the same guy? How come you're old and ugly and got no hair now? <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's still floating around out there. But. um Yeah, mainly it's just the, yeah, the odd theatre gig or something that I'll do now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I do miss it. There's something um, really special about playing. Just doing this Sydney festival with Mission Songs over the last few days have been really, really fun. Getting my calluses back playing double bass, which I hadn't picked up since I think we played down in Melbourne last year. Yeah, why? Yeah. But I guess music's one of those things where you just need to do it. And if you don't, you sort of start to feel like something I'm missing.
0: I guess with all of the research that you've done and all the knowledge that you have of song structures and and language and such, might there be chance down the track that you might be writing some stuff in the more uh, traditional style or are you using language a bit more?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like just for fun, my wife and myself will, um, you know, translate pop songs just for fun. Um, And then with the broader family as well. And then in terms of language education like Aunty Roma Winmar and Aunty Iris Woods have written lots of songs like kids songs in Noongar and that's something that I've sort of, you know, thought might be useful down the track. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think Looking ahead to some of the composition gigs I've got lined up, I'm sort of thinking more about how you can evoke certain things musically um, without being over the top, without being you know, pan-Aboriginal, um, and without making anyone feel uncomfortable. So that's sort of an ongoing thought process <laughs> that I'm getting through. Yeah, haven't quite figured that out.
0: Yeah. So I'm um, trying to figure out ways or what elements that I might be able to bring from traditional Aboriginal music into you know, today's context. Yeah. Um, is there anything that has stuck out to you that is, is quite... I think
1: funny? there's some real basic things that, like, first thing would be that most... Um, old songs, are vocal driven. Even if there's, you know, from music up north, if there's um, Yiraki or whatever didgeridoo people call it, um, there, then the vocal's usually the real prominent feature. And then a lot of other places in the country, just vocal, bit of percussion. So just that starkness, the split between group, duo, um, solo, vocal parts, accent being huge Um, because to speak an Aboriginal language with the accent that a lot of people use to speak English is a lot of the time you're not going to get the words right, Mm. so being really conscious of that and that's why I like listening to old tapes and listening to senior people because you sort of start to get in that sort of accent mind frame Um, and accents i mean it really marks really marks language in terms of where you're from and what your language background is who you listen to who you have learned language from so and that comes across in your singing in a big way and i think when we're listening to a lot of american music or even a lot of music that's heavily influenced by american music sometimes our accent changes when we're singing And so that's one thing where I guess it's not good to be a musician and academic as well because you overthink everything (laughs) and that leads to inertia. (laughs) Um, But yeah, accent is huge. Accent, voice is king, Um, tempo can vary for emotive effect. Yeah, they're probably the big ones.
0: Yeah, so if people are wanting to find out your work what you've been you know up to so some your academic texts and uh and also the the, the products from the Willeman project yeah yeah uh where can people
1: yeah so there's a website um dot Willerman, w-i-r-l-o-m-i-n.com.au a u, and that's got um links to the bilingual books that we've produced over the years i think there's six now And it's also got um, audio recordings of um, the stories being told in English and Junger. So that's there. And it's also got photos of lots of the workshops and stuff we've done over the years. And then if you just Google me, Clint Bracknell, my academic profile from the University of Sydney comes up. And that's got all my academic stuff there, all the chapters and papers and that that I've written over the years. And then a Google Scholar search will usually get you most of them academic writing is kind of weird because a lot of the time you go through it then people have to pay for it to read it. So that's a bit tricky. But um, most of the stuff that's any good is really available. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Um, nah, like most of it is pretty accessible. And if people are like really interested um, you can always email me and sort of sort something out I guess.
0: Yeah, sweet.
1: Yeah. But um, you know, it's good. I mean, book, people making books are going out of business so if you want to buy a book by all means buy a book too you know yeah sweet yeah but like that recirculating songs book that come out that came out as a free ebook, book mm. as well as a um, paper book you know so yeah and no, i've been more and more publishers are that. doing that yeah
0: yes yeah. yeah, uh like well, doing the fellowship uh even like so through vca it just found found it so hard to just be able to gain access to even though i'm doing it through the yeah yeah the, the uni too You need
1: that staff ID. Yeah,
0: Yeah. to to have access to it. Like there's a wealth of information there and it's sitting there for, you know, and all all this hard work that people are doing. uh,
1: It's like if you're not enrolled at a university or a staff member of a university, there are these paywalls that are set up to get access to academic
0: writing. Mm. Um, well, I guess, yeah, like, I'm sure there's a lot of money invested in, you know, your, your time and energy and to actually make it, you know, sustainable, so... That's,
1: yeah, but I mean, that's the, um, that's paid for by the university. So the publishers, so the way it works is if you're writing academic work, you don't get paid for it. The university pays you to generate academic work.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, so that's the, what I mean. Yeah, right but
1: the sales so. of the publications, that's all about um, the publisher. Yeah. But publishers, you know, they've got lots of work to do. They've got to proofread all my nasty papers now. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just to keep, a lot of the paywalls and that, it's just to keep the publishers afloat because they're usually working on a shoestring as well. Because yeah, yeah. as you can imagine, there's not a huge readership for this sort of stuff. Um, so there's no money in it. You know, and people are just trying to, yeah, no, one, no one's getting rich off this stuff. That's yeah. for sure. And,
0: yeah, I, I guess it's a good way to be able to you know contribute to you know, some of this. Some of this study where, yeah, I could imagine, you yeah, know, this is months and years of time mm. and energy.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, you do it because you're interested and because you love it and because it's important to you,
0: mm.
1: and important to your family and that. And then, yeah, in the first place, I mean, I got started with it all just because, um, you know, my family needed help with um, putting a website together and recording some audio. Yeah. Sure.
0: And
1: I just thought it was really interesting and wanted to help out. And, um... Yeah, it's been good, because with with doing that and with keeping on doing music and teaching music, it's landed me here in Sydney. But um, yeah, it is that ongoing pressure to, you know, where am I really best placed to do what I'm meant to be doing. But I guess that's the dilemma we all face today, where you've got people pulling us in all sorts of different directions.
0: Yeah, well, I guess with the... With technology these days, it's it's not like you know we have to write a letter uh, to to the other side of the country. Yeah. And we can connect. And uh, the way blackfellas are with Facebook these days, it's uh, oh man, it's too hard.
1: That's yeah, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so what does uh, two thousand and eighteen have in store for you?
1: Um, I think I'm doing a few um, theatre gigs. A lot of teaching.
0: So, like, we're composing for the theatre? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I'm doing, I'm probably doing some work back home in WA for that. It's all unconfirmed at the moment, but people have asked about it. Yeah, so that's happening. Um, then just, yeah, more more teaching. Keeping going with this songs project. Helping out with some more workshops back home. Yeah. And then trying to get things happening elsewhere as well.
0: Yeah many times Oh
1: yeah you know just gotta keep rolling along
0: <laughs> um, and yeah anything else uh, that uh, would be worthwhile letting people know about um, yeah about what you're doing and what, what you've learned from the process yeah I guess
1: the main thing is like that whole getting into that academic world is is trade-off. Like if you can write a grant application, if you can write a research paper to help acquit the grant, um, then you can get more funding to do the things that are important. And maybe academics will sort of (laughs) shout me down for saying this, but the academic paper isn't the important thing. The important thing is making sure communities have, you know, resources to sustain things that make communities function and feel good about themselves. Which a lot of the time may well be language and song. Um, so for people out there that want to, you know, support their communities, I'd encourage them not to be put off by the academic stuff. It's just another language to learn. And when people say, oh, it's it's whitefellow language, most whitefellows don't understand it either. So um, it's its own thing and it's imbued with its own sort of power dynamics and legacy but it's a trade-off. So if you get into a university, get to learn how that academic language works, that bureaucratic language works, then you can use it as a tool just like anything else. Um, And that's sort of what I've tried to do.